Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. Along with Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel, live in the Baseball America podcast. Nook, Jim, I, I know you've been in the office before. I know we've done lots of podcasts with you before. Honestly, have you been in this ridiculous podcast, Nook, before? I think maybe once, but, but usually when I'm in town, I'm working on the Prospect Handbook uh, in December, and I want no part of the podcast because I'm way too busy. That's right. Um, although I did try to pull that card today, too, because I was editing some White Sox. But, uh, I dragged you in here anyway. I, I want to say, I know I've been in the room, uh, I, maybe it's just to get media guides from the past, but uh, I, this may be my first podcast in the actual room. Well, we're going to have this a, a quick podcast. We both have things we got to do. We had a nice brand strategy meeting here at Baseball America today and budget meetings, first ever budget meetings that I can remember. Um, so we're going to squeeze in a little 20, 25-minute podcast, uh, mostly focused on the American League East top 10 prospects. The first two of those have rolled out at BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, all of them are out if you have the Baseball America iPad app and the iMag or the digital edition uh, or the print edition. But, Jim, uh, you do the Red Sox. I do the Yankees. Uh, you've been doing Red Sox prospect lists for a long time now. I, I think some of the players that you used to rank, or, or most of the players you used to rank are all retired by now. Trot Nixon was the number one prospect on one of the first lists I did. Nomar was on a list. I had Donnie Sadler, number one one I year. remember Donnie Sadler. Uh, you know, I, I had a break when I left BA for about three years, but I've probably done probably most of the last 20 years of Red Sox prospect I think when you I think when you left uh, at that time, Darnell Stinson was the number one prospect. Maybe. I remember I had Peter Hoy. I mean, there's a blast from the past. And that's a wow. way. I'm not number one, but he was on the list. Well, I'm, I think the number ones when you were gone, were, there was, was it Steve Lomasny? Steve Lomasny was the first one. And then I think Darnell Stenson was the other one, the late Darnell Stenson. Darnell was number one twice. So he, I, he, he was number one, then there was a break, and then he was number one again. Okay. Okay. So. That makes sense. It's a little bit, uh, and obviously in the last decade, it's been a little bit more of a player development machine in Boston. And that player development machine really did hit a little hiccup the last couple of years. As Alex Spear, our fine correspondent from WEI.com, explained, and you can elaborate on a little bit, I think, here, between their investment internationally, which has led them to their number one prospect, Xander Bogarts, and the fact that in the draft and the old CBA where the Red Sox could be very aggressive financially, to bring that financial aggression to bear in the draft, they went young. And as a result, it seems like that combination left them with a little bit of a hole at the top of their farm system, Jim, and that helped lead to this year's collapse. It wasn't a big reason for it, but it helped lead to that 69-win season. Yeah, I think when you go from college players to high school players, you know, when Theo Epstein first took over in Boston at the, you know, about 2003 or so, their farm system was very thin. They went for a lot of college guys. You know, that, you're going to get guys when you're that heavy college who are going to move through the system quickly. Then after they got established, they were winning World Series, they started to get very aggressive in the draft. Uh, I won't. We're, we're doing the tight podcast here, so I won't get in the long story. But there was a year where they drafted Pedro Alvarez and could have signed him. Right. If they were willing to spend on Justin Smoke, they that could have signed five, him. That was a five, I believe. Right. They, they had a great draft that year. They had Buck Holtz and Ellsbury and five picks, Jed, Jed Lowry. Lowry. Five picks before the first two rounds, and all played in the big leagues. But they were also they, – they, they passed on Smoke because he wanted too much money. They would have actually taken him over Ellsbury with their top pick. Hmm. They didn't sign Pedro Alvarez in the 14th round. They didn't sign Jason Castro, who became a first-round pick. And, and 
and and when they went back and looked at that, they said, you know what, we we should have signed these guys. You know, we identified them. Let's go sign. So they started getting aggressive, and they, and they did start signing a lot of high school guys. And because they went from college guys who move more quickly to high school guys who take more time, it led to a little bit of a gap. They, they've, they've actually, I think they've drafted pretty well for the last decade or so. I think their one year, they didn't have a great draft. It was a below average draft. It was 2009. And that, that contributed to this lull. And I think also trading guys like Casey Kelly yep. and Anthony Rizzo, who would have been ready this year had they held on to them, you know, contributed to that lull as well. And those um, guys were 07, 08 picks. You did have an 07 pick this year in Middlebrooks, get to the big leagues, high school player, got there on schedule. Um, but, you know, Rizzo was an 07 pick and Kelly an 08 pick. So you're talking about that same uh, time period. And then, like you said, 09 was a year where they just didn't have as productive right, of a draft. That, that, that was probably their, their, their least of their recent drafts. So, yeah, it, it led to a lull. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I do like this year's top ten. And I did, you mentioned Alex Spear, and I did a podcast with him on WEI.com. And he asked me a question that, that totally caught me off guard because I hadn't thought about this this way. But he said, did you guys take a different approach this year? It seems like there's a lot of guys who performed really well at the top of the list. And our approach has always been guys, you know, it's basically who's going to be the best big leaguer in the long term. And, and we look at performance and we look at stats and we look at a bunch of things. And, and I told him no, but that's probably a good sign for the Red Sox because if the, if the players with the best tools are performing really well, that, that reinforces it that these guys are probably going to be pretty good players down the line. Was the toughest guy on this list to rank Jose Iglesias? He just seems like uh, he's just a difficult – it's so tough to rank a player who's so one-sided. I mean, he, he was overmatched at the plate in the big leagues – he was dynamic defensively in the major leagues, just as he was in AAA. I had a hard time ranking him in the International League. It just feels like, the, the, to me, the top seven, top eight was pretty, I thought, reasonable. I mean, like, most people are going to have those as the Red Sox top eight prospects. I would imagine they do internally. Blake Swihart, maybe you could have a little bit lower if you're less bullish on him or higher if you're really bullish on him. But it seems like Iglesias is really the, the toughest call here. Yeah, you know, and it was, you know, I went back and forth. I mean... It's funny, last year I had him at number 10, and at the last second, I'm glad I did this, you know, with his bat being so good, I mean, he, he's arguably the best defensive shortstop prospect in the minors, or at least, in, you know, in that discussion, if he's not number one, and, and there's also no indication he's really going to do much with the bat. I mean, he might if he get to the point where he hits 260 with no power, no walks, and no steals, so even if he hits for a higher average, he's not giving bring a whole lot. And at the last second last year, I actually switched to Jackie Bradley, because I said, if I'm going to go with a premium up-the-middle defender, I'm going to yeah. go with the guy who's bad, I believe, in a little bit more. Um... You know, the, the top eight guys were the clear top eight for me. Um, and then it got to the point you had Iglesias. You have Devin Marrero, who's less defensive but has a chance to be a better hitter. Um, but didn't really tear it up at Lowell and didn't have a great spring. So that's why I didn't put right. him ahead of Iglesias. Um, you have pitchers like Drake Britton and Brandon Workman. You could kind of factor into the mix. Um, I, I guess when it came down to it, and especially when I was stacking him up against Marrero, for me... He he's got elite he's got an elite tool. His defense is elite level defense. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I mean, like you said, I mean, you know, if if you're trying to bring value to the table, he's going to put a lot on the table his defense and, and take some of that off with his bat. But I, I think he can be a, a solid big league regular, but it's going to be with excellent defense and a below average bat. So right. you know, if Devin, I'll be honest, if Devin Marrero had say hit 320 in Lowell, or Devin Marrero had gone to low class A and hit 280. Then I might have said, you know what, I really believe in Devin Marrero's bat. But, you know, if you're looking at those guys, I mean, Iglesias might be a... Or if he had a big spring, maybe. Yeah. That's but, the thing. When you look at Devin Marrero's body of work, he's been a dude for a long time. 
But really, the the big spike in his career, the time that he hit the most and performed the best, was 2011 Cape. Cape and Team USA, yeah. I mean, and if you're looking at those guys, I mean, and the thing is, too, it, I, I think they're about equal in terms of value. But yeah. one guy's done it up to AAA and played a little bit in the majors, and one guy's playing short season ball. But you're talking Iglesias is probably like a, I'll, I'll use extreme numbers here, he might be an eight eight defender and a three bat. Yeah, And Devin Murrow might be a, a six defender. And a five bat. Right. They so, brought that up to 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, which way do you want the value? You know, and, you know, the, the, in the end, it might not matter because if Xander Bogart stays at, at shortstop, he might be a seven bat and a five defender. So That's a tough call. And, and Xander Bogart is where I wanted to end the Red Sox discussion with you, with you. I mean, I think it's just natural that when you have a big-bodied offensive shortstop who's a, a Red Sox minor leaguer, they're going to be comparisons to Hanley Ramirez. How is he similar to Hanley Ramirez? How is he different from Hanley Ramirez? Um, I think Hanley was more athletic. Although, see, I, I guess what's changed for me for Xander in the last year, I mean, he, he's played two higher levels. He's still waiting, you know, 19-year-old in double-A as opposed to an 18-year-old in low-A last year where he hit 16 homers in half a season and, and got to low-A quicker than he was supposed to because basically extended spring wasn't enough of a challenge for him. So they said, well, I guess right. we'll send him in, and he thrived. It's real easy, like you said, to look at a guy who's six foot three. And you figure, you know, he's probably going to be 6'3", 210, 215 when he maxes out physically and say, okay, he's going to be too big to play short. Right. And, and I think it's, that, that's the knee-jerk reaction. And that's really not the case. I mean, he's pretty athletic. I, the, Hanley is more athletic than, than Xander is. They're, you know, he's not – I don't think he's that fast, that quick. Right. But he does have good actions. He, he he does have some first step quickness. He'd be a type of guy who'd be, I think, an, an average defender at shortstop, but a well above average hitter for the position. Um, you know, and, and maybe he plays shortstop for four or five years, and then he loses half a step, and, and you move him to a different position. So much of it, I think, with players like that depends on who's around them, the context, and, and what you need at the time. Correct. I mean, for example, uh, if you have an athletic, very good defensive third baseman like Will Middlebrooks, that that could help you keep Xander Bogarts at shortstop, especially if you have a athletic, good defender, second baseman. Dustin Pedroia, I don't know about athletic, but he's definitely a good defensive second baseman. Uh, I think that masks if a shortstop has less range. So the right combination of players around him, Xander Bogarts, can be that, will be playable for a big league shortstop. But if a big league manager is out there over 162 games and sees plays not being made, he doesn't care who's making them. He wants plays that are going to be made, and he'll make the changes to – to see if those plays get made. I mean, when we talk about it in this division with Manny Machado, to me it seems like Xander Bogarts, has, is it fair to say that he has similar upside to Machado? I think it is. I think it is. And I was going to say, too, I mean, I think where he winds up with Boston, it's really, it's kind of interesting how their shortstops are spread out through the system. Right now they have no clear shortstop. I mean, who right. knows what they're going to do this offseason. Iglesias, I think they want to go with Iglesias. I don't think they want to say Iglesias is our shortstop. Right. I think they, they want, want to go to, to spring training and, and earn it. But I think here, I think, I think what happens with Xander is simply going to be a function of what happens with Iglesias. If Iglesias hits enough, then he's the shortstop. And then when Bogarts is ready, I mean, third would be the obvious position because if you Millbrook, he probably goes to right field, which is also a, a long-term hole for Boston right now. Sure. They don't have a... I mean, I guess Brents could fit there, but they, the outfield corners are, are, are some of the more open positions of the team. If Iglesias can't get the job done offensively, then they'll go with Bogarts. And then similarly, if Bogarts, you know, I don't think Bogarts hitting is going to be a question, but let's say Bogarts leaves you wanting something more defensively, 
Well, then a year year or so after that, Devin Marrero is probably ready. Right. And and if it's not Devin Marrero, then maybe it's Jose Vinicio or Suwe Lin or they got a a guy uh, Rondon in the in the GCL. So I mean, they kind of have them spaced out to where I think Iglesias can get the first shot, and if he can hold the job, then they'll move Bogarts, and if he can't, then it'll be Bogarts at short. It's enviable shortstop depth depth for the Red Sox. Meanwhile, it's enviable major league success for the Yankees. If you're a Red Sox fan, because for all the Yankees' late season postseason collapse and how bad they looked against the Tigers. Um, they did win 95 games. They did win the division. But I think they're very jealous as an organization of the Red Sox lineup of athletic shortstops because they have a 38-year-old shortstop in Derek Jeter who I think you could argue is still, as J.J. and I have talked about in the podcast, you could argue he's the best shortstop in the American League. Clearly he isn't the best defensive shortstop in the American League. But when you combine what he does offensively, how hard it is to find a leadoff man, how good he is in that spot, and the fact that he makes plays on balls he gets to, he makes all those plays, he's reliable, he certainly doesn't get to very many balls. Uh, but the, the Yankees really need help at shortstop, Jim. Um, I, I wrote the Yankees list, but asking you, as, as you've edited them, what did you see the strength of the, of the Yankees' top ten? I, I guess I'd describe it as lower-level talent. I mean, you talked about the Yankees' success, and one of the reasons for that success is the Yankees can keep anybody they want. Correct. Unlike, you know, some teams have to make decisions at some point. Okay, we're spending $150 million, we got to draw the line here, or we right. can't keep this guy's money elsewhere. But in a way, that works against the Yankees because they win so much every year that they pick low in the draft. They take their shots in the draft, but they more get the $300,000 guy here, the $500,000 right. guy there, rather than here's a million, a million three. So they, they don't make a big splash in the draft usually. And the new international rules, I think, hurt the Yankees more than just about any team. Completely agree. Because they've been... The Red Sox were the most aggressive team in the draft relative to where they were picking. The Red Sox would spend a lot of money without spending $5 million on like the number three pick in the draft. Right. I think the Yankees were the most aggressive of the large revenue teams that, you know, internationally compared to the draft. The Yankees, you know, for whatever reason, you know, had a lot of success there and have gone in that direction. $2 million on uh, Jesus Montero, which was later reduced to $1.65. Gary, 1. Sanchez. Gary yeah. Sanchez with $3 million. Uh, you know, a package of players out of Mexico that yielded them Manny Benuelos, Alfredo Aceves, and they've been very aggressive internationally. And that's not even mentioning the money they used to just throw away internationally on Andy Morales or Jackson Malion or Katz Maeda or those kind of things. But so anyway, I mean, when you asked about their strength, I, I like their low, lower level guys. Your Mason Williams, your Slade Heathcott, your Gary Sanchez, your Tyler Austins. Those guys are really good young players, but they're all in A-ball right now. Right. So they're realistically... And it's probably even longer because you're talking about a team that consistently contends where you're not going to just say, hey, we're giving three rookies a job. Those guys are all probably about two years away. And in their top ten, and in fact, a little bonus teaser in their top 12, because I seriously considered Mark Montgomery, the closer uh, who reached double-A, and Ramon Flores, uh, outfielder, all these guys spent the majority of their season in A ball or below, with the exception of number six, Brett Marshall, and number eight, Manny Benuelos, who had Tommy John surgery. And the whole reason that Brett Marshall ranks so high is that he's he's going to be like a 50 low or a 55 low in the books, that kind of thing with the BA grade and, and risk factor. But he's about the only low guy they have in their top ten. He is the only low risk guy in their top ten. And he might be really more of a median. I mean, he it, might be a medium. Yeah, he's I mean, had Tommy John surgery, but sent, the thing is that since then, the reason for me he's the low is that he's made every start, 27 starts each of the last two years. I think he's a durable back of the rotation starter, but he doesn't dominate, so it might, he yeah. might be a medium. He's right on that borderline. And you know, just to contrast him to the Red Sox, the Red Sox have a bunch of guys who are 55 highs or 50 highs who, you know, kind of like the Red Sox have guys who, the, the, the guys, after you get past their first few guys, are comparable 
to the top of the Yankees list. The ceilings aren't quite as high, right? But like, like I know because I haven't. When I did the Red Sox, I've ri- I've written the 11 through 30. I put them in order. I haven't written all the reports, and the handbook's obviously not out. But like the Red Sox, 11 through 30. It's 20 guys. There's probably 16 guys on there who are 50 high, 50 high, 50 right. high. I might, I might have a 55 extreme, you know. I got too many 45 medium yeah, in my Yankees it, top 30. You know, it, it's just it's the difference. And that's it'll be interesting to see. And I, and I think your overview touched on this with the Yankees. They don't really have a lot of guys to fill in. And, and it's easy to say, okay, yeah, it's the Yankees. They can go out and get whoever they want. But they want to, A, stay under the $189 million luxury tax right. threshold for at least a year so they can get a penalty. And, and B... Even if you could spend whatever you wanted, it's it's not that simple. Like if you wanted a shortstop, let's say Jeter was done. I mean, I'm not he's he's not. But let's say for, for Jeter's sake. done. We got to go get a shortstop. We're not going with Eduardo Nunez. You need to give Stephen Drew, you know, you know, a, a long-term contract. That he's like the best shortstop on the market right now. Right. You know, are you going to go? I mean, yeah, you know, every team that wants a shortstop, I have Jays fans killing me on Twitter. <laughs> you know, we need a shortstop. Uh, we'll we'll trade uh, J.P. and Sebia for Jerks and Profar. Right? Good luck with that. Right. You know, I mean, it's not like you can just go talk to the Rangers and say, well, you got Andrews and Profar, so give us one. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You know, and, and, and again, to tie this back to the Red Sox, you know, the Red Sox saved all this money by, you know, they saved $261 million by, by trading Beckett and Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez and, and Nick Punto also uh, this season. What are they going to go spend it on? Are you going to go give all that money to, to like, basket cases, Josh Hamilton exactly. and Zach Reinke, who yep. could just blow up totally in your face? So it's like <laughs> I wouldn't call them ga- basket cases. I would say fragile, fragile, uh, fragile. personalities. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and like, in, in a place that's supposed to be pretty tough to play. You know, I mean, that could be – I mean, Boston has all this money. I don't see how they're going to spend it. You know, I mean, you could go corner the market on the Edwin Jacksons and Kyle Loesch's of the world. I mean, you want to go get three of those guys? I mean, so yeah. it's like I don't know. The, 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 the free agent market – I'll sidetrack here for a second. Is so thin because teams have so much money now. You know, with, with MLB advanced media and, and, and drawing the national contracts, the new TV contracts, contracts drawing the attendance, you know, continue to draw. You know, sell. You know, it's a seven billion dollar industry that that everybody has money. You know, you have the Reds extending Joey Votto like two years before they have to, right. for instance. And so, like guys aren't getting to free agency. And I do think we're going to see some crazy contracts, and you're just going to get crazier. And and I think. I don't think MLB looked at it this way, and maybe I'm giving the union too much credit, but I think the union did look at it this way. When you set up all these restrictive draft rules about what the high market teams can spend, you know, the Yankees can't spend as, anywhere near as much internationally as they used to. The Red Sox can't spend anywhere near as much on the draft as they used to. And so when these teams need things, they're going to have to go pay for free. They're going to have all this money. Right. They're, they're going to go, like, basically break the bank. I mean, I'm not saying they'll, they'll do it this year for the Stephen Drew in that example. I used for the Yankees. When the Yankees need a shortstop, they're going to have to break the bank for the Stephen Drew of 2014 free agent class. Or they're going to have to develop it on their own. Right. And Eduardo Nunez, I think, has proven that he's not right to be an everyday shortstop. Especially not for the Yankees. Correct. Like, like I could see if you were... A mid-level team, maybe right. say, oh, if we'll you were the twins, by. if you were the twins, and if you didn't have Ron Garden hire as your manager, where he demands such <laughs> a high level of defense of a shortstop, which not even if you're the twins, because I mean, that, how does that explain Suyoshi Nishioka or right. Alice Casilla getting all these uh, at bats? But the point is, uh, yeah, if you were the twins and you w- lost 90 plus games the last two years, you could roll the dice on Eduardo Nunez. We'll, we'll see what he can do. We'll, we'll because he does have tools, he does have ability, and he has offensive ability. He actually yeah. looked okay offensively in the postseason. But yeah, I, I, that's, that, that really would be the Yankees' choice. Because, and the thing is, they drafted Tito Culver in 2010. They knew he was, I mean, he was 17 when they drafted him. He, he's an August birthday, good birthday. Um, but they knew he wasn't going to be ready in two or three years. So they knew when they drafted all these guys. They knew Mason Williams in their 2010 draft got the highest bonus. He's their number one prospect. They knew he wasn't going to be ready within two or three years. But they were planning out for a couple more years down the line. It's surprising, though, that they 
are so thin at the top levels. I think they thought they'd have a little bit better pitching depth than they do at the top. And Benuelo's injury, Betanza's not not developing, just really going in the crapper <laughs> this year. Um, just really didn't work out for them. Very quickly, Jim, I, I think the, the big issue with the Yankees' top ten is uh, the ranking of the top four players. Tyler Rawson had the best year. He's the most polished of those players. He has the He's closest to the majors of the Yankees' top four prospects. Mason Williams, I think, has the best combination of performance tools. He did have the shoulder injury this year. I don't think it should preclude him. Slade Heathcott's had two shoulder injuries, and it's kind of like, I mean, he's almost like Chris Snelling 2.0 in some ways, isn't he? More athletic, but yeah, yeah. More athletic, but the... the the guy gets hurt every year. You, every you, year. So and and, uh, and, and, and it's going back to high school. Too. Right. I mean, he got hurt in high school. And then there's Gary Sanchez, who's the wild card. Where I I really do feel like I, I try to keep this in the background, but I feel like when people in and out of the Yankees organization evaluate Gary Sanchez, Jesus Montero is always his comparison point. Yeah. He's 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 a more fluid offensive player. He's more conventional. I don't think he has near the natural bat to ball skills that Montero has. I don't think he has the power, but I do think he's a better defensive catcher. But that's that's damning your faint better praise. Defensive catcher. <laughs> I don't know about that, but my my footwork has gone uh, has gone south here lately. But I don't know. How, would you have lined them up this way necessarily? I mean, obviously, didn't do the reporting. I, I think the but, top four guys. You, you, we always talk about this. What's fun about it is you could put them in any order, and that's why I like the BA. I don't remember because the BA grades are are handbook special. They're not yep. the issue. And we I went, went a little higher on, and we tweak yeah. them, so I don't remember exactly what they all were. I mean, the, the Austin. You know, if, if we did a ceiling versus floor, Austin might have a higher floor. Right, I think know, he was a 55 medium, and the other guys were all highs. Yeah. I think that's how it worked out. I think they were all 60 or 65 highs, and he's a 55 And I may have toned medium. them down, because I, t- I, t- I toned everybody's grades. That's fine. Ranks guys. But you but told I, me that mine were all on the low side. Yeah. Well, you had a bunch of 45s after you got into the teens. It was just like, it was like wow, most guys are giving like 55s and 60s to their 15th guy on their list. But no, I mean, it's um, if I was stacking them up, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I would have put Mason Williams one, because... You know, he's a center fielder. I, I might have put Slate Heathcott. I might have flipped Heathcott in Austin. Okay. Although, but then, but then again, I actually, you know what? I probably would have, looking at this, I probably would have put Heathcott four, maybe. Mason Williams, to me, like you said, it's the best combination of performance and tools. He would have been one. Heathcott's injuries, that probably would have, I probably would have put him at the end of the line because of that. Sanchez has a chance to catch and be a special offensive player. So I would have kept him, you know, I, you know it's not like he's a first baseman, like a, right. a one-dimensional, I mean, he, some guys may tell you he may wind up as that, but right. but so I might have put Sanchez two, and I might have put Austin three, but I, I think that's what the fun of this is, is you can argue these guys in different ways. I do think if you're doing, if you're focusing on ceiling more than floor, and you're not convinced that Gary Sanchez is a catcher, and I'm not convinced Gary Sanchez is a catcher. I'm not, I'm not either. Then I think Slade, you could, you could easily put Slade Heathcott too, which is what we did. Yeah. If Slade Heathcott stays healthy, he's going to be a really good player. I mean, if Heathcott were healthy, he'd be one. Yeah, for, and it, if Heathcott was healthy, he probably would have been in Double A this year. Correct. So correct. you know, he's just it's it's it, I had he's it's funny how you, it's like you, you, these guys you have in your draft. I, I had Slade Heathcott when, as a Texas high school kid yeah. in our draft coverage. And he sounded tremendous that year, but he was hurt. I think he had knee and shoulder injuries that year. I think, yep. he's, I think he had a knee injury in the fall, and his shoulder began to bother him that, that spring. That was it. Yeah. That's it. And, and the thing is, uh, and the, I just think it's conspicuous by the, the fact that the Yankees have developed pitchers lately. We have to wrap here. But Ian Kennedy, uh, for me, Ian Kennedy and Jeff Carstens uh, to uh, David Phelps, Yvonne Nova, uh, guy, Jabba Chamberlain, Phil Hughes, uh, Hector Noesi, to varying, deg- varying degrees of success – the Yankees have developed a pretty significantly high number of pitching prospects. I think it's very telling that their top ten, their top pitchers are a low ceiling, 
5'11 right-handed pitcher and Brett Marshall, who they aren't as high on as I am, frankly, uh, and people outside the, the, the organization are. Uh, Jose Campos, who they're all very high on, but p- made five starts this year and got, got hurt. hurt. And then the biggest X factor in the book, I'm not even mentioning Ty Hensley. I should, their first-round pick this year. But uh, interesting, but a high school pitcher who already had some control. Shoulder, ab- shoulder abnormality. Shoulder pro- they it. found the physical. you got Manny Benuelos, who's hurt. Manny and Benuelos, you have the Rafael Mr. DePaulo, X. Mr. X himself, mm-hmm. Rafael DePaulo, not even pictured in the issue. Hey, John, I think we, we still have five minutes here. I think we should go one minute each on the last three. We'll shortchange people, okay. but we'll do this PTI style. I um, like it. P- well, well, Quick impression of the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, we, 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 Neither of us think the Toronto Blue Jays farm system is as good as we thought it would be. Yeah, you know, I've been saying all season, I thought the Rangers and Blue Jays had the top two farm systems in baseball. And, it, and I think the, the Blue Jays farm system is a good farm system. But I was looking at it, I was like, this isn't, one, you know, they've traded a lot of guys. It did not blow me away. But, like, once you get past the, 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 the you know, you have Travis Darnot. You know, in, at the number one spot, you had Jake Marisnik, who I like, who didn't have a great year, and then you have the trio of pitchers at Lansing and in, in Syndergaard, Sanchez, and, and Nicolino. You know, then it's it's guys who are pretty far away. I love DJ Davis. Uh, I love the upside there, but a lot of upside, I, long way to go. A long way to go, and there's a lot more long way to go, guys, in the Blue Jays system than I thought there would be. But they did graduate a lot of players. Tampa Bay Rays, Jim. I think both of us have been saying this organization has not had a lot of success in its drafts from 2008 on. We have a chart that they're the only team in Major League Baseball that has not seen any big leaguers since the 2008 draft on. Um, and it reflects in this top ten. It's a good top ten, but I think by Ray's standards, it's below what they've been producing for the last decade. It is, and it's also the, the, the scary thing for their two is a lot of these guys are a long ways away from the majors. I mean, the, their best draft in the last five years is probably that 2011 draft where they had 12 picks for the first right. two rounds. But all those guys are, are probably a good two or three years away from the majors. And, and yeah, I, I do really do think you know, what the Rays have been able to contend for five years is pretty amazing you know, with the, the limitations yep. they have. And then they're going to contend again next year. But kind of what you see right now is pretty much what you get. I mean, you, you, Chris Archer is going to be up, you know, and, and Colin May will probably be up pretty soon. But most of their guys are two, three years away, um, and they don't have you – know, there's, there's not a ma- – like, I like Chris Archer, but he's not Matt Moore. He's, he's not, not David Price. He's not Evan Longoria. You know, I mean, I like Taylor Guerrero, but he was in the Penn League this year. Right. So it, if it's, they have a future Matt Moore or David Price or Jeremy Hellickson, it's it's Taylor Guerrero. I think he has the highest ceiling there. I think Chris Archer's ceiling is very high. He's a lot closer to the major leagues, but Guerrero to me is the highest ceiling guy there. I agree with that. But the thing is, too, and this happens to a lot of guys, his stuff pitching every fifth day in short season was not the lights out. Oh my God! You know, how do you hit this guy's stuff? Right. It was. Oh, it was good. good. I mean, his command was a lot better than I thought it would be. Right. I think he walked like five guys. But but the Rays could be in for a little bit of a rough patch coming up in the next couple of years. And the the team that coming into the year, you and I both said fifth best farm system, fifth best big league roster. I think we were both wrong about the fifth best big league roster, clearly. I'm still picking him fifth next year, John. I, it's, uh, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. But I, I say kudos to the Orioles for a great year. But, okay, so it's obvious. That this is the most obvious one and two in the whole book. To me, Bundy one, Gossman two. From the three to ten, uh, Jim, well, who's your pick to click on three to ten? Because I don't know if I have one. I was going to say, <laughs> I don't know if I have one either. I mean, I thought Jonathan's scope was kind of an easy number three. Are any of the rest of those guys top 100 guys? Nah, not for me. 
I, mean, I don't think so either. Me, I mean, now I, I will say that I, I feel like the longer I do this, I get more cynical about it and like, uh, you know, because you, you've seen so many guys fail and you realize that very few guys are, are everything that they're, they're cracked up to be. And so sometimes I'll say that and then I'll be doing my own preliminary top 150 list. I can top 100. And I'll be like at number 72 and be like, oh, I need 28 more guys. <laughs> you know, right. Who's going on here? So, so maybe Scope will sneak on there. But no, I, I think it's too. I mean, and Bundy will be near the top of the list and Kevin Gossman will be, you know, in the top, top fourth of the list. Yeah. And and that's it. But no, that's uh, it's a pretty big fall. I mean, they, they, they were hurt, obviously. Right. They helped the big league club, but may, nobody expected Manny Machado wasn't going to qualify for the list this year. Agreed. Great lightning round at the end of the yes, podcast. Sir. Always love having Jim Callis on the podcast, probably even more than you guys do listening to him. So It's our most concise podcast ever. At, we're we're at still least, under 30 minutes. At right least now. in the BA modern era, it is in the last uh, two or three years. So for Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.